0: Well, our reading from God's holy word this morning is from Psalm 15, as we noted at the beginning of our time together. If you have your Bibles, you might turn to Psalm 15. If not, you can look along uh, with me in the bulletin as we consider these uh, brief five verses, one of the shortest of the Psalms, but I believe a Psalm that packs uh, quite a punch when we get into the essence of its teaching. It is a psalm of David, one in which we don't have much of the historical setting of which he wrote. We could brainstorm a lot about what may be going on in David's life as he writes this psalm. Could be a number of things as I was thinking about this passage this week. But the most important thing in this context, since the Lord has not given us all of the details surrounding the event of this psalm is that we pay attention to its content, what it is that is being spoken in and through this prayer of King David. So, if you will, look with me in Psalm 15, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell? On your holy hill. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. It is an important instruction to us as your people. And we're seeking you in this hour. We want to know you. We want to know you as you've been revealed in your word, and we want to be faithful to what it is that you're speaking. And so would you now please come? Come and reveal Yourself. Show Yourself in proportion to the needs of us, Your people. Grant to us the holiness we need by which to dwell with You. Give us Your righteousness. Make us righteous. For Christ's sake. Amen. Well, you've probably been in the situation... As I've been on a number of occasions where I've asked a question and I wished I hadn't because I got a truthful answer. Ever been in that situation before? Where you asked a question maybe out of politeness or maybe out of curiosity or just speculation and the person whom you asked the question to took it really seriously and with full integrity responded to you in the depth of what that question meant. Maybe it was a question like you asked or posed maybe to someone this morning when you walked into the sanctuary and you said, hey, how are you? And they took you seriously. And they began to really tell you how they are. And after about a minute and a half of honesty, you were like, ooh, I didn't really want you to tell the truth. I just, I wanted you to say, fine, okay, a little tired, but glad to be here. Something light, something on the surface, something that wouldn't get us into the depth of the reality of what's really going on in our lives. I wonder if I wonder if David felt that way when he started this psalm. You know, I wonder if in his mind he was, you know, thinking back over the people of Israel and their history, and he was saying, it seems as if this relationship with God and his people is, a, is dysfunctional. It's like, it's like a poor, it's like a bad marriage. There's communication problems, there's intimacy issues, there's, there, there's, there's all kinds of... There's all kinds of missed opportunities. There, there's all kinds of expectations that are getting trampled on. And, and you know what this is like. We've been there in our married relationships. We've been in there in our relationships between our, our children. We've been in there even with friends. And we think there's something at the core of this relationship that keeps stubbing its toe in this way. This relationship is, is, is very core. It's just dysfunctional. It's just not working as it ought to work. You wonder if David's reflecting a little bit on that in Psalm 15, and then as he begins to reflect, well, well, you know what I need to do? I need to think about what it is that God would say as he answers this question. And God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we're told in Peter that the men of God of old were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As they wrote the scripture, God began to illumine david's mind and he began to write out the answer maybe it was just flowing freely from his own heart and and from his own mouth and then he looked at the answer and went oh that's not what i wanted to hear i i didn't know we were going to go that deep you ever asked a question and then kind of regretted the answer that you got in this passage david is raising what i would like to call for us today a burning question a burning question. It's one that he, he, I sincerely believe, can't help but ask. Because he knows the critical nature of its importance. He asks a question that his soul cannot be settled until he gets an answer. But I want you to see, not just that it's a burning question, I want you to see that when he gets this answer, it's an unsettling answer. The answer that she actually gets is the answer that we're afraid might be true. But this passage is essentially telling us if we want to dwell with the Lord, we must be holy. Oh, no. Haven't we already passed through forgiveness of sins in this service? Did you, did you participate in that with me? Did we together say we've done wrong things What that means is, you can't dwell with God. That's what this psalm is saying. He who does all of these things won't be moved. The implication is, he who doesn't do these things will be moved. Will be moved. That's us. He has this burning question, but he has this unsettling answer. The question then becomes... Is there any hope? Is there any hope for the likes of people like us? Well, let's get personal with David. Is there hope for people like the likes of David? You know some of David's life. He's a man after God's own heart, but let's be honest. Sometimes it didn't seem like he was tapped into God's heart very well he was God's man. God chose him. God used him. There were many things about David that resembled the character of God, but it wouldn't take us long to stumble across areas, sections, moments of David's life that look far from the kind of holiness that's being described here in Psalm 15. What do we do with this? Well, as we consider this burning question, I want to propose to you that this question is the most important question that we can ever ask. Now that's a huge statement. That's a huge statement. I realize, and you're used to preacher hyperbole, right? You're used to like exaggerated. You know, every week I seem to say, this is my favorite passage in all of the of the scriptures. And it's because I've been in it, you know, for hours and hours this week, and now it is at this moment my favorite, you know, passage because the Lord has spoken so, so deeply. And, and, and yet, I don't mean to be hyperbolic in any sense of, of the term when I say this is the most important question we can, we can ever ask. To say that would mean that I believe that the purpose and the meaning of life is to be found in the presence of God. That's the underneath of that. You see, that's the point of this question, this opening question, O oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? You think, what's he talking about there? Well, that tabernacle, remember? Remember the tabernacle in the Old Testament when the people of God wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and God was with them in presence by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night and then when they stopped to camp for a little while, they set up the tabernacle in the glory cloud We'd come down and meet with God's people. Um, the question being raised here is, how, does, how, do we, how do we dwell with God in that tent? How does God actually walk with us as we pilgrim through this life and abide with us, with the likes of us? How do we sojourn in the tent of the Lord? And then notice how he progresses a little bit. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now it's stayed, dwell, sojourns, movement. Walking, pilgrim, now we're dwelling. Who can be stayed on where the holy hill? Now what's he talking about there? Well, in Jerusalem, of course, he's talking about the Temple Mount. In in the midst of Jerusalem, there's this raised hill, and it's where the tabernacle set once the people of God had moved into the land of Canaan, and then later it's where the temple was built. And so this is the place of the people moving from the wilderness into the land of Canaan, and now they're dwelling, but now he's asking the same question. How do you sojourn with God in the wilderness? And then how do you dwell with God once he's he's established his presence in a place? How do you dwell with him upon that holy hill? It's It's a really important question. And he's arguing in that opening question that this is a passion and a pursuit and a desire that must be the lead passion, the lead desire, and the lead pursuit of our lives. To answer the question and to be found present in the tent where God is sojourning with us, to be found in the temple where God is dwelling, that, I would argue, and I think David is arguing here, that is life. That's life. Now that's, I think, critically important that we see that's different from the way that we often think about it. We often like to talk about God being important to our life. God is helpful in our life. We bring our problems to Him and He helps us. He, he does things for us. He, we may even say things like He's on the top of the priority list. You know, there's, there's God and then there's marriage and family and then work is somewhere down here. And we, we speak of it this way like God is a leading important piece of our lives but here's I think something really different is going on here in this passage the problem with that sort of thinking is that it treats God like he is a resource for our life rather than God being the very essence of life itself David in this passage is not saying how can God help me how can I help How can I, in a sense, get from God the life that He wants for me? He's saying, how can I get God? That God Himself is the one that I desire. He is the lead value. Not what He gives me, but Himself. His presence. Now, the the realization is... Uh, Many of us don't realize it, but we actually are captured in the thinking that God is more or less a resource for the life that we want to live. Now, we we know this is the case um, when when God lets us down. Uh, Because we're talking about the Psalms and we're talking about prayer, have you ever prayed for something and, and it's not been answered in the way you expected it to be answered? Well, I have I've prayed for things I've longed for things and, and then nothing, nothing's ever happened well let me ask you how do you respond when you pray for something you know faithfully twice and right that's how it goes right let's be honest you, you, oh I would pray oh I'm going to pray for that twice and you know and it didn't happen what happens did you get frustrated yeah did you get frustrated did you wonder what's the use why did I do this? It's not, it's not turned out the way, the way I wanted it to, to turn out. Maybe you're, you're the type that said, I know what the problem is. I didn't pray long enough. I'm going to tack on 30 seconds to, to that prayer. I didn't pray hard enough. I'm going to be more fervent. I'm going to take on you know, that prayer voice. You, you know what I'm talking about, prayer voice? You know how you talk normally to people and then you go to pray and it's the, our Father, you know, and you go into that, you know, almost King James language. I'm going to go, I didn't say it right. Uh, or no, God didn't do this, I bet, because I'm not, because I've, I'm not being good. And he's punishing me in some way. How, how many times have you had these sorts of thoughts? Well, listen, these kinds of thought, thoughts are indication that you really, for the most part, are approaching God as he can help you with the life that you want rather than to approach God as life itself, being in His presence. Because you're not relating to God for God, you're relating to God in what God can get you, in what He can do for you, and your intimacy with Him is based upon whether He's solved your issues or not. Whether things have come together for you. And you know what this is like. You, this does not bespeak of intimacy with someone. Think of the person in your life who always calls you just when they need something. You know this person, right? Their name pops up on your phone and you go, oh boy. And you answer it and sure enough, they want your lawnmower again. And they and the only call when that's the case. Let me ask you, do you feel particularly close to them? No. Why? Why? Because you know what you feel like? You feel like you're being used. You feel like they, they they want you because of what you can do for them. And and if you can't do anything for them, then you don't hear from them. I wonder what if your relationship with God looks a little bit like that. How, how often does our relationship with God look a little bit like that. I was talking to a, a man just the other day who was talking about his daughter going off to college. And I said, tell me some of, some of what you've been passing through as you sent your first child off to college. He said, well, let me tell you one thing. It's helped my prayer life. It's helped my prayer life. Why has it helped your prayer life? Because now I have a need and more than I've ever felt, I'm out of control. And now I need God in a way that I haven't sensed my need for him in the past. And it's not a question like David is asking here. Lord, how can I be with you in your tent? How can I just dwell with you on the holy hill? It's saying, God, I've got a long list here. This might take a while. If we are really going to enjoy communion with the Lord, if we are going to find our way to God, we are going to have to treasure God. And we're going to have to experience God's treasuring of us in Christ and in the gospel. We want to be where David is in Psalm 27.4. Listen to what he says. He says, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, if you could distill your entire life down to one petition, is it this one? That's what David is asking. One thing I ask of the Lord. If it comes down to one thing that I can request, it is that I would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and I would dwell in his temple, is that where your heartbeat is that 's what this question is raising. Do we love God for who God is? Do we love God as a resource to the life that we 're planning that we want him to bless? And those are fundamentally different things, fundamentally different things well. How do we dwell in the presence of the Lord? If we have this as the heartbeat of our life, how do we dwell in the presence of the Lord? Well, we catch a glimpse of it in that little phrase at the end of that second question, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Holy. Now, as David says, holy hill, he's not describing the dirt in Jerusalem. He's describing the being who occupies that hill. It is not the bush that was holy, or the ground around the bush that was holy when Moses went up to it. It was that the God of the universe had dwelt as a consuming fire in that bush, and by being on that ground, that ground had the holiness of the presence of God. That's the 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 reality of what it is that David is speaking to here. He says, "You must. How do I dwell on your holy hill?" And then we begin to get the un settling answer because david begins to put us through in verses two to five what i'm going to call the holiness test he begins to put us through the holy holiness test now i know you thought this was summer and test taking was done school year is finished but actually the ushers in the back have some number two pencils that they're going to be bringing down the aisle some scantrons here in a second we're going to see how you do on this bubble test but the reality is i wish it was that easy I wish we could take that kind of test and it could be pass or fail on how you mark with a number two pencil on the test. I wish it could be that simple. The reality is as we walk through the holiness test here in Psalm 15 is the holiness test is testing the entirety of your life. The entirety of your life. It's wonderful like take a test for 30, 45 minutes, an hour, two hours, and then walk out of it and be out of the test. This is a test you're never out of it. Guess what? You're in it right now. Oh, did you not know that? Ooh. You're you're on test-taking day every day when it comes to the holiness of God. It's the entirety of your life. And this is way more important to make sure you get, you know, an upper 20s, lower 30 on the ACT so you can get into the school you want to get into. This is about getting into the dwelling place of God for eternity. And there is no preparation exam that can get you quite ready for what it is that David's going to unfold here in this text. And he says this holiness, it's something about being set apart. It's about being pure. It's about being holy. It's about being whole. That the completeness of ourselves match the character of God Himself. That's what we're after. And he says, I want to unpack that for you. He says in verse 2, he gives us a great summary of holiness. He says, holiness is walking blamelessly. It is doing what is right. It is speaking the truth in your heart. I love that description of holiness. If you think of walking blamelessly, it's walking in a way where no one can see any fault about you. You're blameless. There's no charge that can be brought against you. There's no sin that can be levied against you. You're walking blamelessly with the Lord. And then notice there's an external and an internal. There is is the doing of the good to the neighbor. And then there's the speaking of the truth in the heart. There is the internal workings and the motivations of what is there. And there is the outward expression and the action that flows from it. And those two, he's saying, when those are a complete match... When your motivations are pure and white as the driven snow, and you act on those motivations and you live consistently with them to the highest degree that is humanly possible, at that point, you have become holy. So that's what this means walking blamelessly, doing what is right to our neighbor, speaking the truth in our heart. And he says, But let's dig down in that a little bit. I want to give you three parts to this holiness test there's a truth test there's a relationship test and and ultimately here at the end there is a test uh, with regards to your finances to your money says there's a truth test look at what he says he says you can't slander with your tongue you can't do evil against a neighbor you can't reproach against a friend Um, holiness requires a test of our truthfulness And truthfulness has much to do with our mouths. What we say. In fact, one of the ways we really know who someone is, is by how they speak. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. Now, for someone who is prone to words, I don't like this very much. But like it or not, words actually reveal who we are, And if we paused right now and we considered the words of ourselves and the words of the people around us and we're considering whether or not those words are being used for the building up or whether those words are being used for the tearing down, what you'll see is there's a relational component to this. If we just scanned through our contact list on our smartphone, we looked at the individual names and we said, and we just asked these questions, does this person gossip? Does this person... Slander. Do I catch them talking negatively about other people? Are they kind of busybody storytellers? Is that kind of what, what they do? D- does this person's words build up and encourage and edify? Are this person trying to tear down or destroy? And if we went through that list, here's what we would actually find. When you find someone who guards their tongue, speaks in a cautious and wise, careful manner... You're faithful in the building up of their words They're the kind of person that when they speak, their words have great value because of how it is that they levy those words for the good of those who are around them. What you'll find is that those are the people you listen to the most and those are the people you trust the most. Those are the people you listen to the most those are the people you trust the most. If you come across someone who talks behind their back, whispers other people's secrets in your ear, guess what you won't do? You won't share much with them. You won't share much with them. And for good reason. You don't feel you can trust them. The truthfulness of the individual is being called into question. Their sense of integrity. Their wholeness. They look like they care, but then their words squeeze out sideways. Slanderous towards others. And the test of holiness, God is telling us here, is a test with regards to truthfulness. And the reason it's a test of truthfulness is because God is a truth teller. He's holy and he's a truth teller. There's no shadiness about his words. There's nothing squishy or slippery about the words of God. He, he, He speaks faithfully. He's a holy God with holy words. And if we're going to dwell with him on his holy hill, then we too have to be people who pass the truth test when it comes to holiness. But we've got to secondly pass the relationship test. Look at how he says this in, in, uh, in verse 4. He says, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Now David is genuinely asking here, what sort of person do you align with relationally? What sort of person do you, rely, you align with relationally? That word vile is not a lightweight word. It's a heavy word. It means someone who is hardened in their perversity. Someone who is committed to wickedness. Now, there's a difference. There's a difference because you've run up against it. There's a difference between someone who you know is a sinner and who sins and grieves over their sin and there's a difference between a person who sins and glories in it. One who rejoices, as it were, in their shame. You know, you know. there's the person who gossips and, and feels bad about it and then goes to repentance and seeks to make reconciliation. There's a person who gossips and then laughs when they see the other person's life destroyed and their reputation undermined. There's a difference in terms of the, the level of perversity and the vileness. When we see vileness as it takes place, what we're seeing here in this passage is there's a despised vision of, an assessment of that that comes forth from someone who is holy. We have a strong reaction that this is out of the cord with the character of God. This is not right in the world. This is destructive. This is not contributing to the goodness and the peace and the glory that is the design for God in His redemption. What we're looking for is to be a people who honor those who fear the Lord. If we have rapport with those who have seared consciences, if we have rapport with those who call righteousness wicked and wicked righteous, then it's an indicator to us of the kind of character we have. It's an indicator that we have rapport with them because they see us as one of them. Now, this is really different from what we see with Jesus as he is constantly meeting with the wicked, talking to the unbelievers, engaging with those who are doing evil deeds. This is really different from that because as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John shows us, Jesus is spending time with those who are sick, not those who are well, for the purpose of actually bringing them out of that sickness into a state of wellness. We sometimes miss this as I'm hearing people talk about the mission of Christ, where he spent time hanging out with sinners, yes, but he was friendly with sinners without being friendly with sin. He was, he was a lover of those who were wicked, but he was hating wickedness. He maintained his holiness and his righteousness in the midst of his loving relationship To those. In fact, if we see we don't see Jesus commend their sinfulness, if we ever see people Jesus commend someone who's a sinner is because they've come out of that sin. Think of the prostitute who is weeping over Jesus' feet and is wiping her his feet with her hair. And and Jesus says, This one loves much because she's been forgiven much. Where does the commendation come in? The commendation comes in that this woman was of another quality and type and now she has moved towards me in salvation and redemption because she has left her old life in the past. She's coming into the new life of grace. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. He's not reveling in the old. He's drawing a great distinction between the two and that's what we see Jesus doing in here. Regardless of social position, Regardless of what the world thinks, Jesus is saying we must get close to and honor those who honor God. And we must not participate or associate, connect with those who are vile. But he doesn't stop there. He he goes on to what we would call the treasure test. He says, holiness requires a test of treasure because what we treasure reveals our true character. Look at how he says it. He says, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change who does not put out his money at interest and does not bribe take a bribe against the innocent. Now we've already talked about two pretty significant tests of holiness, right? Truthfulness, the way we speak about others, who it is we relate, how it shows forth our character and then he comes to a third one, this is a big one. How do we connect with money in relationship with others? How does money work in relationship to others. And, and, and really, this is, this is big, right? What reveals more about our hearts than our money, right? You, you know the old adage, you really want to know what someone's committed to? Look at their calendar, look at their checkbook. Right? Look at their calendar, look at their checkbook. Where do they spend their time? Where do they spend their money? That, that's their functional priorities. That's going to reveal it. And David floats this out there because he wants us to see that holiness is not greedy, Or opportunistic, holiness is generous. Holiness is generous. He says, first, you must keep your word even when the bottom line is going to plummet. Much lower than you ever imagined it would do so. That's what he means by this this phrase, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He's committed to do something. He bid a job. And he way underestimated it. But he stays with it even if it means it has to impoverish him. Because his word is his bond. He's faithful and whole, inside and outside. What he's committed to is what he's going to do, even if it means that he loses his shirt in the process. It's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no, and then let the chips fall where they may. And then he says, secondly, it means that you don't see someone else's deprivation their need as your opportunity for wealth accumulation you know someone comes to you for a loan and you think opportunity opportunity how can I exploit this situation how can I levy interest on top of this person as they would pay back this loan how can I as the Old Testament would put it use them. How can I make a quick buck here? Instead, what we're being called to here is a is a ministry in compassion that says, God by His grace has given me the resources to bless you in your time of need. It's, it's a posture of ministry to help them pay it back in a reasonable time with no interest. Let your wealth be that which is used in ministry and holiness requires this. Holiness requires that we don't look and our money and the people's needs as an opportunity for us to gouge them and get what it is that we can out of them instead. It's a way of serving them. It's a way of ministering them. It's a way of lifting them up. It's a way of encouraging them. And he says to do this even if it financially ruins you. He who swears to his own hurt and does not changed. Now, I use that language ruined for a reason, because look at that last sentence. He says, he who does these things shall never be moved. Right? That word moved can actually be translated r- ruined. He, he who does these things will never be ruined. Now, to be quite honest, if you go through this list, you think, if I do these things, I'm quite possibly going to be ruined. Right? I'm... I'm I mean, it sounds like you're inviting my life, you're inviting me to give my life away. According to this, it's the truth test. Let's just let's think about it. If we can't gossip or we can't slander against one another, how are we going to get ahead in life? I mean, really, isn't the purpose is that your boss knows that you're a lot better than the other person, and any way you can make the light shine on them a little bit less and a little bit more on you, isn't that the way you're gonna get ahead in life? I mean, this is vocational ruin. To follow the truth test here. look at, Listen to the relationship test. If we don't do what all the cool kids are doing, even if it's sinful, if we don't engage in the things that are acceptable, even when they're wrong, say in, in school or in business or even at home, we feel judged by them. You know what's going to happen? We're not going to gain social acceptance. We're going to be ruined. We're not going to be in with the people who are in. According to this holiness test. And then look at the treasure test. I mean he says if you never take a little money under the table if you never charge any interest to those who, who are your business contacts and you maintain a scrupulousness with regards to what it is you do then you're never going to have the retirement nest egg you're looking for I mean at the end of this he says he who does these things will never be moved, I, never be ruined I don't know why that but, but of course this is what raises the big question what are you pursuing? One man's ruin may be another man's treasure. You've heard that. What seems like trash and loss to one can seem like value and glory and meaning and purpose to another. And David in this passage is saying, you know what? I'm willing to give up all my social acceptance. I'm willing to sacrifice all of my treasure. I'm willing to guard all of my tongue and even praise and affirm and building up. If that person gets the promotion, then so be it, God. I'm willing to do all of those things and be, quote, unquote, in the world's eyes, ruined so that I'll be preserved to dwell in the house of the Lord. My treasure is not that I get to a certain level in my career or I'm able to buy that corner lot and build that house and vacation to that place during my retirement years. My point is not that the people who have the money and have the prestige know me on a first name basis. Those things can totally go the way of all the earth as far as I'm concerned if it means I get the treasure of dwelling in the house of the Lord. You see, this is a test of integrity. It's a test of our holiness. Do we really love God for what he does for us or do we love God? Alone. Is God himself enough? Is he the relationship that's worth sacrificing the other relationships for? Is he the treasure worth losing the bank account for? Is, is his word so important that you'll curb your words? in your relationship to others. Now here's the reality of we're committed to all of this and we're not asking the question what's in it for me but what's in it for God? If we're really in that spot then we will not be moved. Then we will not be moved. Then we will dwell in the house of the Lord. If you will simply be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect then you are going to be totally fine. It's very clear in this passage. So good luck. (laughs) It's not the answer we were looking for. It's where he stops. I mean, the psalm's over. We're done. The psalm is done. But the story's not over. You see, when you look at this psalm, you see a picture of holiness, but I I hope you see a person. I, I hope you see a person who is a Savior Jesus, who never slandered, who did no evil against his neighbor who despised those things which were vile and esteemed those who feared the Lord. I hope you see one who was willing to swear to his own hurt and not change his mind. God in Christ made a covenant long before the foundation of the world that He would save mankind. And you know what it would cost Him? Everything. cost Him His life. As Jesus hung there on the cross, do you know what He was doing? He had swore to His own heart, hurt, and He did not change His mind. Because long ago in the covenant with Abraham, when he walked between the pieces that had been split and broken, he said, if we break the covenant and do not uphold to the standard of holiness and righteousness, then it would be to him as was done to those animals. He would be ripped apart on our behalf. He swore to his own hurt. And praise be to God in the garden of Gethsemane when he was praying that the Lord would take this cup from him that the Lord didn't answer that prayer. But instead, gave him the cup to drink all the way down to its dregs on our behalf and saved us. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of what we see in this passage is that Jesus has become the standard of righteousness and holiness for us. And we can now walk in the power of his strength in the glory of His grace, in pursuit of becoming like Him. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we ask that indeed this communion would become part and parcel to who we are. And that this life would become more and more the characteristic of our lives. Until we see that glorious Holy Savior face to face. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.